So right out of the gate, need to, to do a little bit of, of laying of the groundwork. Paul's letter to the letters to the church in Corinth can, can be a little bit confusing because essentially what you have are four letters that, that we're made aware of. Um, you have in 1 Corinthians chapter five, Paul mentions the letter that he wrote before 1 Corinthians so that 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter to the church in Corinth. And then here in 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions a severe letter that he wrote between First and Second Corinthians, so that basically what you have is a lost letter, First Corinthians, a lost letter, Second Corinthians, making First Corinthians Paul's second letter, Second Corinthians Paul's fourth letter. You tracking with me? That's like how my youngest daughter Quinn counts by threes. Three, 10, 13, 20, 23, 30, 33, 40. We're working on that, by the way. I share that with you because Paul's gonna reference this severe letter in this morning's passage, the the letter that has since been lost that was written between the writings of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. This morning's passage essentially focuses on the criticism that Paul received in light of his change of plans to visit the church in Corinth, the change of plans that caused many in the church to question Paul's integrity, bringing the very integrity of the gospel into question. Because... The reality is if Paul can't be trusted, why trust his message of a a crucified and risen Jesus? So that what we'll see this morning is Paul defending his travel plans, which might sound a little silly and trivial, yet in doing so, Paul's actually going to defend the very integrity of the gospel while at the same time declaring his steadfast love for the church in Corinth, as well as God's unwavering faithfulness to them in Christ. So that I would say this, Think about this morning's passage, if you were around for our Christmas series, like the first week of that series, where we dove into the genealogical account in Matthew chapter one. This morning's passage, just because it's Paul defending his itinerary, is not meant to be glanced over to get to the good stuff, the substance of the letter. Before all said and done, we're, we're gonna get a heavy dose of God's sovereignty and grace this morning if we'll lean into this passage. Begin in verse 12. Paul says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Paul's integrity It's being brought into question on the basis of a change in travel plans. And here he begins his defense. And it's intriguing what Paul says here as he chooses the language of boasting. Paul's already gone on record as having said to the saints in Corinth, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So I think the question begs to be answered, what is Paul doing here? I mean, how many of us would feel comfortable boasting of our godliness, our lack of duplicity and pure inner motives? Most of us likely don't walk around championing our godliness. But notice what Paul attributes not only to his life, but his teaching. He says, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. That Paul's life, a life of simplicity and godly sincerity, and Paul's teaching, which he hopes they will fully understand, it's a life that displays the gospel, 
and a teaching that declares the gospel. And, and Paul knows that, that this is a gospel of grace. As he'll go on to say in chapter two, verse 17, I'm not a peddler of God's word. I'm not out to manipulate you in order to get what I want out of you. The gospel is what it is. The hope of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone is what it is. And so I preach the gospel. Christ and him crucified is sufficient for me, Paul says. Paul doesn't talk, notice, solely about grace in the rearview mirror. I love what Paul does here. This is a gospel that is certainly evident in his teachings. I don't think anyone would argue with that, but also in his life, because Paul understands that God's grace is not only a grace that justifies, but also a grace that sustains and sanctifies. He doesn't leave grace in the rearview mirror as though the only part God's grace has to play is in our conversion, though that is true. Notice that Paul gives all the credit to God whose grace has forged in Paul a simplicity and godly sincerity. But, but notice that Paul goes even further, declaring a future tense boasting as well. Verse 14, on the day in which the Lord Jesus returns, the day in which we who are being sanctified by God's grace, if you're a Christian, that's you, will be glorified by God's grace. The good work he began in us brought to completion. So that if you're a Christian, think about this, past, present, future tense, you were justified by God's grace. You are being sanctified by God's grace. You will be glorified by God's grace. So that if there's anything that we should walk out of this place clinging to tightly as it pertains to words, proclamations, it would be Paul's phrase, but by the grace of God. That we would always be saying that phrase because it's never untrue. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul goes on to say in verse 15, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, verse 18, our word to you has not been yes and no. All right, let me try to make sense of, of what Paul's saying here. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse five, toward the very end of that letter, one of those sections that we do tend to pass over fairly quickly, you see that Paul's intention was to pass through Macedonia and then pay the church of Corinth a visit on his return trip, maybe even stay in Corinth for the winter. Here, in 2 Corinthians, he informs them of a different plan, one involving two, not one stop, but two stops in Corinth, one on the way to Macedonia and one on the way back from Macedonia. After having written 1 Corinthians, apparently Paul determined that an additional visit was not only a good idea, but an opportunity to, for a second time, rather than just once, experience God's grace together. However, after a painful visit with those in Corinth on the way to Macedonia, a visit during which many openly rebelled against Paul, called his apostleship into question, he decided not to pay them that second visit, and instead he decided to write them a letter. Their response, as we see here, Paul defending himself, was to accuse Paul of being unreliable. Kind of like maybe how we feel at times whenever 
we put a cup of coffee or a lunch on the books with someone and then 15 minutes before we're supposed to meet, you get that text message or that email that comes through, which you wouldn't have even known about if you didn't decide to check right before you left the house and it tells you that, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna be able to meet with you. And we begin to question, does that person care? Do they wanna be around me? Are they a person of integrity? Will they just do this again if we try to put it on the books a second time? The response was to accuse Paul of being unreliable, some of them even perhaps thinking of Paul as manipulative. Rather than giving Paul the benefit of the doubt and graciously believing the best in him, they assumed the worst in him, which as a, a very brief side note, can, can we not be those kind of people as a church, but rather be gracious toward each other for the sake of the gospel? Some in Corinth had assumed the, the worst in Paul, not knowing that his change of plans was actually an act of mercy and love, a way of sparing them pain. If you skip down to verse 23, it says this, but I, but I call God to witness against me. In other words, uh, if, if what I'm saying is not true, strike me dead, Lord. It was to spare you, Paul says, that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That letter that Paul speaks of here, that's the severe letter that's since been lost, the one written between 1 and 2 Corinthians. Paul's saying, it was better for me to, to write to you rather to, than to come to you in person with the rod of discipline. It, it was better for me to give you space to repent so that my next visit would be one not of pain, but of rejoicing. What, what many in Corinth perceived to be this lack of integrity on Paul's part, it, it was actually an abundance of mercy and grace. Likely what was running through Paul's mind was the gospel because it was often running through Paul's mind as he considered God's mercy and grace and kindness in waiting to send the Lord Jesus in his second coming to return so that many might repent. Paul was a man of integrity, a man whose change of plans was not an indication of his being unreliable or manipulative, but rather simply his following God's leading. Again, if you go back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul's plan to visit Corinth, it didn't come without a qualifier. Paul used the words in 1 Corinthians 16, if the Lord permits. Sometimes the Lord doesn't permit. And that doesn't mean that he can't be trusted. Right? That could be an entire second sermon on this morning's passage about our questioning God, whether we can trust him in the midst of his changing the circumstances and plans of our lives. He did it in the life of the apostle Paul. At times we don't know why. He does it in our lives as well. And it doesn't mean that he can't be trusted. How do we know that God can in fact be trusted? Well, Paul tells us. How do we know that God is true to his word? The answer, Jesus. And, and that's not just the, the good Sunday school answer or the kids ministry answer, you know, when you're not paying attention and, and the question comes your way and you're like, I don't know. Coin flip says Jesus might be right. No, this, this is true. Jesus is the right answer to the question 
when we ask, how do we know that we can trust God? How do we know that God is true to his word? The answer is Jesus Christ. Coming back to verses 19 and 20, Paul says, for the son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Paul could be trusted, honest, and true to his word because his change of plans were in accordance with God's leading. And God can be trusted, honest, and true to his word because of Jesus. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus himself said as much in that encounter with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, where beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus opened up the Old Testament with those two disciples and interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That he's the declarative yes to every single promise that God has ever made. You come across a promise in the scriptures, Jesus is the yes to that promise. He's the amen. He's the so be it. And lest that get lost on us because it's so very easy to take 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, slap it on a bumper sticker or a coffee mug and move on with our lives so that it doesn't bear the full weight that it's meant to bear. I wanna take us through a litany of promises that find their yes in Jesus Christ this morning. We're gonna have our road to Emmaus moment here. And my prayer is that God does exactly what he did with those two disciples in Luke 24, that we would walk away from this crash course in the Old Testament and that our hearts would burn within us as we leave this place this morning. This list is taken directly from a Gospel Coalition article by Kevin DeYoung, put together several years ago, even more directly from the Bible. Put on your seatbelts, here we go. Lots of scripture to come. Jesus is the promised seed of Adam who would crush Satan's head, Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham through whom every nation on earth would be blessed, Genesis 12.3. Jesus is the son of Judah who reigns eternally as king, whose garments are washed in the blood of grapes and whose hand is on the neck of his enemies, Genesis 49. Jesus is the Passover lamb who was slain to protect God's people from the angel of death, Exodus 12. Jesus is the greater son of Israel who came out of Egypt and he is the great redeemer who brings his people out of a bondage and slavery that is far worse than anything the Israelites experienced there. Exodus 12 through 14. Jesus is the true bread from heaven who nourishes and feeds his people. Exodus 16. Jesus is the rock from whom the only life-giving water flows. Exodus 17. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, perfectly obeying not only the 10 commandments, but all 613 from the day of his birth, Exodus 20. Jesus is the one through whom we enter into our lasting Sabbath rest, not just for one day out of seven, but for every day from now through all eternity, Exodus 23. Jesus is our great high priest who offers his very body as an atonement for the sins of his people, Exodus chapters 28 and 29. Jesus is the radiance of God, the exact representation of his being and is the very presence and glory of God among his people, even more than the ark or the pillars of cloud and fire, Exodus 40. 
Jesus is the once for all sacrifice that God offered on the altar on the day of atonement on Calvary. And at the same time, he is the scapegoat that was sent out of God's presence into the wilderness on account of the sin that he bore, Leviticus 16. Jesus is like the bronze serpent that was lifted up. And when people look to him in faith, they find forgiveness and healing, Numbers chapter 21. Jesus is the star that shall come out of Jacob and the scepter that comes out of Israel, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Jesus is a city of refuge for guilty sinners to run into and find shelter, Numbers chapter 35. Jesus gives us every blessing for his obedience to God's perfect commands, and he paid the price for the curse we deserve for our every disobedience, Deuteronomy chapter 28. Jesus leads his redeemed people into the promised land where they will dwell with him forever, Joshua chapter 3. Jesus is our conquering warrior, victorious over the powers of sin and death, Joshua chapter five. Jesus is the righteous judge and savior who never fails to defend and protect his people when they repent and turn back to him, Judges chapter two. Jesus is the offspring of David whose kingdom has been established forever, 2 Samuel chapter seven. Jesus is the very temple of God, which though destroyed was raised again in three days, 1 Kings chapter eight. Jesus is our chief prophet and teacher who restores true religion by calling us away from our idols to return to the one true God, 1 Kings 18. Jesus is Job's hope and ours because we know that our redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth, Job 19, 25. Jesus is the eternally begotten son of the Lord most high who kings fear in his anger and who blesses those who take refuge in him, Psalm chapter two. Jesus was for a time forsaken by God on the cross so that those who are found in him might never be rejected, Psalm chapter 22. And yet his body did not see corruption because as David sang, God did not abandon him to Sheol, but raised him physically with an incorruptible body, Psalm 16. Jesus is the shepherd of his sheep who restores the soul of his fold and leads us in paths of righteousness, the famous Psalm chapter 23. Jesus purges us with a cleanser much stronger than anything the hyssop branch can spatter on us. He washes us clean in his very blood so that we might be whiter than snow, Psalm 51. Jesus is the greater son of David who will sit at Yahweh's right hand until all his enemies are as footstools and is the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek as we talked about in the, the book of Hebrews not too long ago, Psalm 110. Jesus is the word of God incarnate, the only lamp for our path, Psalm 119. Jesus is the very wisdom of God made manifest in the flesh, the whole book of Proverbs. Jesus is the only purpose in life that matters, the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Jesus is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley, and he is the husband who brings his beloved to the banqueting table and who satisfies her fully in his love, Song of Songs. Jesus is the sign of Ahaz, one named Emmanuel and born to a virgin, Isaiah chapter seven. Jesus is the great light shining to a people walking in darkness, coming out of Galilee of the nations. He is the child born who is called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on his throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, Isaiah 9. 
Jesus is the shoot coming from the stump of Jesse and righteousness will be the belt of his waist. During his reign, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them, Isaiah 11. In Jesus' coming, the glory of the Lord is revealed and all flesh shall see it together, Isaiah 40. Jesus is the Lord's servant in whom his soul delights and with whom he is very well pleased, Isaiah 42. Jesus is Israel's only savior and besides him there is no other, Isaiah 43. Jesus was despised, very famous passage here, and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He is the one who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we were healed. Isaiah 53. I'm not done. Jesus is anointed by the Lord to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. He proclaims the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and he comforts all who mourn. Isaiah 61. Jesus creates the new heavens and the new earth, and he will dwell with his people there forever. Isaiah 65. Jesus is the balm in Gilead that heals the sin-sick soul. He's the great physician who restores the health of his people, Jeremiah 8. Jesus is the righteous branch from David who will deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land, Jeremiah 23. Jesus drinks the cup of the wine of the wrath of God so that his people will be spared, Jeremiah 25. Jesus ushers in the new covenant in his blood, a covenant written on the hearts of his people and marked by his forgiveness of our sin, Jeremiah 31. Jesus is the very manifestation of the never ceasing steadfast love of God. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning for great is his faithfulness, Lamentations 3. Jesus brings life to dead men's bones. By his spirit, he causes breath to come where death had reigned, Ezekiel 37. Jesus is the son of man whom the ancient of days gives all dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, Daniel chapter seven. Jesus is the merciful husband who takes back his unfaithful wife, Hosea chapters one through three. Jesus brings the day of the Lord, which will be a day of great terror and judgment for all who do not know him, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Joel chapter two. Jesus is the ruler from Bethlehem Ephrathah, whose origin is of old from ancient of days, Micah chapter five. Jesus is the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap, refining us like gold and silver, Malachi chapter three. And lastly, Jesus is the son of righteousness who will rise with healing in his wings. And as a result of what he has done, we like calves will go out leaping from our stalls, Malachi chapter four. That's not all of them. That's just some of them. Paul says, you might not understand why my plans have changed. You might question me, but understand this. Jesus Christ is a sure foundation. Stand firm in your faith, Paul says. Never cease to put your trust in this Jesus. For all of the promises of God find their yes in him which is why I think Paul doesn't get caught up in proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. 
He knows that Christ and him crucified is sufficient. Jesus is the substance of Paul's preaching, Paul's writing, because there's not a single promise in all of scripture that's divorced from the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. So that each and every promise of God either has been, is being, or will be fulfilled in him. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul goes on to say, as we close this morning's passage, verses 21 and 22, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I love what Paul does here. Just like last week, we began with worship and ended with worship. He does the same thing this morning. We we end right where we began with God as the active agent in this great story of redemption, but by the grace of God. Paul says, it's God who establishes his people in Christ, making them to stand firm in him. It's God who consecrates his people in Christ, anointing them with his spirit. It's God who puts his seal on his people, indicate that they belong to him. And it's God who gives his people his spirit in their hearts as a guarantee of the full inheritance to come. The active agent in all of these blessings, the main character, the primary in this story, verse 21, it is God who. It makes perfect sense to say, but by the grace of God, and to also say, salvation is of the Lord. Our justification to the praise of his glorious grace. Our sanctification to the praise of his glorious grace. Our glorification to the praise of his glorious grace. It's all God's grace. A grace that's ours because of who Jesus is and what he's done. So that I would say it this way this morning. If you know anything of your absolute hopelessness apart from God's grace, it should not be very hard to muster up a hearty yes and amen. Don't skip the genealogies of scripture and, and don't skip the itinerary plans either because right here in the midst of Paul's defense of his travel plans, you have one of the greatest declarations of the sovereign grace of God, a grace that's yours because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. We have an opportunity to, to declare our, our yes and amen to the glory of God in these moments of come to come in a few different ways as we do week in and week out in this place. We get to declare, declare our yes and amen, our so be it to this God who's fulfilled or will fulfill every promise in Jesus Christ with our collective voices as we sing to him, as we sing of his praises, as we sing of his grace, of his glory, of his work in our lives, as we declare in song but for the grace of God you have an opportunity to declare our hearty yes and amen as we come to the communion table and receive the bread and the cup. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread here, representing the broken body of Jesus. We dip it in the cup, representing his shed blood. What an opportunity to affirm. It's a visual of the gospel that's just been verbally declared through the pulpit ministry of the church. As we come and take the bread and the cup, we're declaring in a very visual way, yes and amen, to everything that Jesus has accomplished. Think about that. As you take the bread and dip it, look at, at that juice-soaked bread representing the blood-soaked body of Jesus and, and give it 
a moment in your hand before you partake of it and consider that every single promise that you have ever come across in the Bible or will ever come across in the Bible between now and the day you die was purchased by that broken body and shed blood. Amazing. And then lastly, there'll be people in the back of the auditorium to pray with and for you on our prayer team. If you would like prayer this morning, perhaps you're struggling to cling to God's promises, maybe wondering if God really can be trusted in the midst of what you're going through. What an awesome opportunity to have someone come alongside of you and lift you up to the Lord to pray that, that your heart would grab hold of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 that God can be trusted, that every promise either has, is, or will come true because of Jesus.